We've been journeying our way through the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and following the life of the man named Abraham. And his life is worth taking the time to study because his life is all about the journey of walking with God and growing in faith, growing in your relationship with God step by step along the way. This week we're going to reach the end of Abraham's earthly life and we're going to reflect on the issue of faith, the thing that defined his life. And I really believe that wherever you are in your faith journey today, you're going to be challenged and you're going to be encouraged deeply by our study today. So expect that. And let me be even more specific. When I say expect that, here's what I mean. Have your Bibles open. Have a pen ready. Have somewhere that you're ready to write down notes. Be expecting that. You know, when you come believing that God is going to speak to you, he will speak to you. When you show up and you say, I'm expecting absolutely nothing from this, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get absolutely nothing from it. So expect from God this evening, and I believe God's going to speak to you. So before we move into chapter 25, I wanted to go back and share one little thing from chapter 24. In the back part of Verse 27 of chapter 24, I actually put it on your outlines. Abraham's servant, Eliezer, says to Rebekah, Isaac's future wife. If you don't remember the scene here, Eliezer is a servant of Abraham. He's been sent by Abraham to find a wife for Abraham's son, Isaac. And so we find Eliezer at this place with this woman that he's found that he believes would be the perfect wife for Isaac. Her name is Rebecca, and he's staying with Rebecca's family right now and trying to leave. And he tells Rebecca this. He says, on your outlines, as for me, and then underline this, being on the way, the Lord led me. Being on the way, the Lord led me. So Eliezer tells Rebecca, I set out on my journey I wasn't entirely sure where I was going. I wasn't really sure how I would find the right woman or, or the right people. But the Lord led me to the right people and he led me to you, the right woman, exactly as I hoped he would. And I love the phrase that Eliezer uses. He says, being on the way, the Lord led me. I love that phrase because centuries later, the Lord Jesus himself would declare, I am the way. I am the way. And the early church was known as the way for the first few centuries. And many times we wonder things like, well, how will I know who to marry? Well, how will I know what career to choose? How will I know if I should make that move or, or, or that job change? Or, or how would I know if I should continue that friendship or not? How, how will I know how many, how many kids to have? And it might shock you, but many Christians do not receive audible answers from the Lord to those questions. Many Christians, many Christians, I'm being facetious. But here's the encouragement. If you're walking in the way, if you're walking with the Lord, abiding in relationship with Jesus, John 15, he'll lead you. You'll end up in the right spot. And that's what happened to Eliezer. You know, every time I see a photo of Charlene and I from our wedding day, I always think two things. And the first one is, Man, we were just kids. We were just kids. And if you've seen our wedding photos, you know that's true. And then the second thing I think is probably the same thing that you also think when you see my wedding photos, which is I had hair. I, I had hair. And I, and I marvel at how young and naive and ignorant we were. You know, we didn't have the wisdom to choose a life partner at the age of 19. We'd only just learned how to drive 
we're going to choose a life partner. We didn't have the, the vision or the wisdom to know how to choose a life partner when we started dating when we were 16. But we did have one thing going for us. One thing. And that, that is that we were both on the way. We were both walking with the Lord in fellowship with Jesus. And, and the Lord led us. The Lord led us. And one of the most interesting phrases to me in the New Testament book of Acts is in regards to some decisions that the early church leaders had to make. And there's this phrase, it seemed good to us, that's used to describe their decision-making process. And, and I find this amazing. Crucial decisions related to the structure of the early church and early church leadership and who was going to go out as missionaries. And what they write down in the book of Acts is, it seemed good to us, so we went in that direction. We know they would have prayed. We know they would have fasted. But what the phrase tells us is when it came time to make the decision, they didn't have a clear word from the Lord. They wasn't writing in the sky. They didn't hear a voice speak down from heaven. So they just went with what seemed right to them. They looked in the Bible and they, they, they said, okay, this is what the scriptures say. This seems like the right thing to do, so let's do this. And it worked out. They were in the way and the Lord led them. So, so if you're here today and you're feeling paralyzed by a decision you need to make. I would encourage you, you don't need to read books about decision making. You need to focus on abiding in Jesus, on walking with Jesus today, then getting up and walking with him tomorrow. Make that your sole focus and he will lead you in the way. That's the promise of the word of God. You need to thank him that his word says he will give wisdom to you. If you ask for it, thank him that his word says you have the mind of Christ. So even in those moments when you think, I don't have a word from the Lord, make sure that you're abiding in Jesus. Make sure that you're walking in the way and the Lord will lead you. So make a note of this. The Lord is always leading us where we need to be. He's always leading us where we need to be. It's not that we're simply walking with Jesus day after day. He's actually leading us places. He's leading us to where he wants us to be. And sometimes what he tells us is, I don't need you to even worry about where you're going. I just need you to worry about walking with me. And when the time comes, you'll make the right decision because I'll be leading you. So let's move forward now into chapter 25. Chapter 25, as our story picks up, Abraham is around... 140 years old, he's getting up there a little bit, and it's been about 20 years since the love of his life, Sarah, has died. His son Isaac has been married to Rebecca for quite a while now, and Isaac himself is in his middle age. And in verse one we read, Abraham again took a wife, her name was Keturah. Keturah means incense, and the implication would seem to be that she was a real blessing to Abraham, and we might find out why in the next couple of verses, because we read, and she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Asurim, Latushim, and Lumim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Eldaah. And all these were the children of Keturah. And you might recall that when Abraham was in his late 90s, 
It took a miracle of God, a biological miracle of God for his wife, Sarah, to get pregnant. Do you remember how Sarah laughed because the idea was so preposterous that they would be physically capable of having a child? Well, more than 40 years later, Abraham is getting Keturah pregnant over and over and over again, proving that what Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says really is true, that the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. And uh, apparently Abraham continued to operate in his giftedness all the way until the end of his life. And so it's interesting that we tend to think of Abraham only as the father of Israel. But you remember what the promise was that God gave him? It was that you will be the father of many nations, many nations. And that's what we see coming through the family lines of Ishmael and all these sons that he had with Keturah. They would go on to become entire people groups, nations. Verse five, and Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Isaac. Remembering that Abraham is a type, he's a picture of God the Father, and Isaac is a type of Jesus, the Son, this verse points ahead to what Jesus himself told us in John 3.35. It should be on your outlines. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. You see, all things find their ultimate destination in Jesus. All glory, all fame that exists in the present, in the past, and in the future is destined to make its way to Jesus. Now, some of it may temporarily pass through certain people, but nobody will be able to hold on to it because all glory is destined for Jesus. And the day will arrive when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord because the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And that is why you and I find purpose and meaning in life in everything that we bring the Lord into. And it's why we struggle to find meaning in the things that we don't bring the Lord into. This is why one man can dig a hole while praying and find contentment and meaning in his work while another man can dig the same hole and be in depression and despair at the mundaneness of his life and job. Whatever we invite the Lord into becomes filled with meaning while anything we do apart from him is essentially, it's essentially meaningless. That's the truth. It's a key to Christian living, bringing the Lord into everything that we do, bringing meaning into everything that we do. Verse six, but Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. So in case we forget, a concubine wasn't a live-in prostitute. A concubine was really a second-tier wife. And Abraham had two sort of second-tier wives during his life that we know of, Hagar, first of all, and then Keturah, here. And what we see here is Abraham taking care of his family business before he dies. He makes it clear that Isaac is his main heir. Everything he has is pretty much going to Isaac, but he gives gifts to his other sons in addition to sending them to live in a different region. And by the way, Abraham's likely the wealthiest person in the world at this point in history. He's a multi-billionaire. So when he talks about like giving gifts to these other sons, it's not like here's an iPhone, I love you, have a good life. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the modern day equivalent of here's $50 million. I need you to move 
to a different state. I just need there to be some distance between the sons so there's no rivalry. The idea is these gifts were significant enough that they would guarantee that there wouldn't be hostility and fighting between all his sons after Abraham was gone. They were going to be more than satisfied with what they got out of the deal. So Abraham does everything he can to avoid his death causing family problems. And I'm just going to say this real quick. Family, we should learn from that. We should learn from that. Men especially. We need to make sure that if we died that our families would be taken care of. And just to be so practical, hopefully you'll hear this from me because I'm not selling it. But life insurance is wise. It's a wise thing to do. Disability insurance is wise. It's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to make sure that if anything happened to you, your family would be taken care of. We see Abraham here doing that all the way back in Genesis, and we would be wise to do the same. I wish I did sell insurance because I feel like I could sell a lot right now. In fact, we got a table at the back. and <laughs> Take a look at verse 7. It says, This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived. 175 years. He lives for around 64,000 days. And even though your earthly life and mine is not going to last that long, there's a reason it's not called the Christian leap or the Christian jump or the Christian bounce. It's called the Christian walk because it takes place one step, one day at a time. And the question is not how am I going to live 10 years from now? The question is how am I going to live today? That's the only question. How am I going to live today? Am I going to be intentional about walking with God today or do I expect that time's just going to pass and somehow magically in a few decades I'm just going to hop, skip, and jump my way to spiritual maturity? You know, one of the greatest misconceptions in spiritual life is that when we're old, we'll automatically be spiritual will automatically be wise just because we're old. Now you can learn some things through observation, but spiritual wisdom isn't gained by simply getting older. Spiritual wisdom is gained by individual days walking with the Lord. And let me tell you the truth, if you've been in the church any amount of time, you will have seen this too. You've probably bumped into somebody who's been a believer for five years who in reality has far greater spiritual wisdom than someone who's allegedly been a Christian for 40 years. And the reason is the person who's only been a believer for five years, that person has actually been walking with the Lord every day for five years. And the person who's been a believer for 40 years sometimes has been walking with the Lord 14 days a year, 20, 25 maybe. And so that person over there has actually accumulated more individual days walking with the Lord and they're far spiritually wiser than the other person. You see, it's not time that grows you in the Lord or makes you spiritually wise. It's walking with the Lord one day at a time. So wherever you are, I encourage you, focus on walking with the Lord today. If you're young, you have such an incredible opportunity to accumulate days of walking with the Lord. What an opportunity you have to be incredibly spiritually wise by the time you're 30 just by walking with the Lord one day at a time. Abraham died after walking with the Lord for at least 100 years. He was 75 years old when he obeyed the Lord for the first time and left Haran back in Genesis 12. But every year is made up of individual days and a lifetime of walking with the Lord is only achieved by the person who wakes up and is concerned about walking with the Lord today. 
Verse eight, then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years. Underline the word full, full. I don't know if it's like this in your Bibles, it should be, but the phrase of years, or however your Bible says it, should actually be in italics. And some of you know this, we point it out whenever we can. That means that that phrase is not actually in the original manuscripts. Some of the Bible translators added it because they thought they needed to to make the sentence make sense grammatically. But it doesn't actually need it because that verse is meant to say, then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full, full. The Hebrew word there for full is sabia and it means satisfied. What a wonderful, wonderful way to die. How how did he die? He died full. He died satisfied. And after devoting a century to following the Lord and living for him, the observation that was made of Abraham when he died is that he died satisfied. He died full. He didn't look back on his life and say, you know what? What a waste. What a waste living for the Lord. I missed out on so many good things, so many fun things. He was able to look back and say, I'm so pleased that I spent my life living for the Lord. And looking back, there's nothing greater, there's nothing more satisfying that I could have done with my time on this earth. All those faith steps, all those times trusting God in difficult circumstances, all worth it. I'm so glad I did it. But here's the amazing thing. Because we can say, well, oh, Well, big deal. I mean, Abraham dies the wealthiest man in the world. Of course he's going to say it was worth it. But I really believe that the martyr who died in prison for Jesus or died being burned at the stake would say the same thing, that they died full, that they died satisfied. Why? Because we're not talking about the satisfaction and peace that comes from living a life where everything works out. That's not what we're talking about. This is the satisfaction that comes from reaching your last breath and knowing in the depth of your soul that you did not waste your life. That you instead spent your life on the greatest thing you could, Jesus. It's the hope and joy of taking your last breath, knowing that your next will be face to face with Jesus in heaven. If for any reason the rapture does not happen in my lifetime, I plan on dying full. Make a note of this, living for Jesus is the greatest use of any person's life. It's the greatest use of any person's life. And I would just say as an encouragement, especially for those of you who have kids, never forget that. Never forget that. The things that you push for in your children's lives, the things that you hope for, the things you hope to see them achieve, the things you hope to see them become, do not ever lose sight of the fact that the greatest destiny your children could ever, ever walk in and fulfill is that they know and love Jesus, that they live for him. That's it. That's the height of it. There's things I long to see for my kids, but more than anything, my prayer is, is, Lord, I want to see all these things happen in the life of my kids, but Lord, if there's one thing I want for them, it's that they'd know you and love you. That's it. Because if they do that, guess what? Everything else is going to fall in line. They're going to care for other people. They're going to be a good spouse. They're going to be a good parent. They're going to be an industrious worker if they love and live for Jesus. And as I was studying for this, this, this made me think about something my dad told me during the last years of my, my grandmother's life, she was being impacted by Alzheimer's pretty significantly. And if you've ever had a loved one go through Alzheimer's, you know how, how painful that can be 
to watch. And my, my dad was just telling me, I was about 16 at the time, he was just really sad. And he was telling me that she was becoming increasingly paranoid and, and convinced that everyone was out to get her. And her final years were just spent being dominated by, by fear as Alzheimer's ravaged her mind. And, and my dad said to me, he said, you know, I, I want to live my life in such a way that if I ever get Alzheimer's, I'll be so full of Jesus that the only thing I'll be imagining are visits from him. And that's always stuck with me. And I, I have no doubt that if my dad ever does get Alzheimer's, he'll be getting regular visits from Jesus and probably Moses and Elijah and maybe the Apostle Paul on Thursdays. But, uh, but I know that my dad is going to die full, no matter what. He's going to die full, and we can too. And then we read that Abraham was gathered to his people. He was gathered to his people. And that statement in reality will be, will be true for every single person in this room, every single person who ever has or ever will live. We will all be gathered to our people when we die. The question is just, who are your people? Who are your people? Are those believers who, who've gone before us and are now in heaven your people? Is the church your people? Or is the truth that you feel more comfortable in the world? Those are your people. Every single one of us will be gathered to our people when we die. Make sure that the church is your people, your people. Now before we move on, I, as I said at the beginning, I wanted to take some time and just reflect on the life of Abraham, the, the father of faith. And I had planned on looking back at different sections of his life and highlighting lessons from each, but... I really believe you can go back and study that more if you want. We've been through all of those lessons already, and I feel like the Lord gave me something to share specifically on, on the subject of faith, and so I want to do that, and I hope it's going to come out right. It's not the way I usually like to teach. I usually like to just go line by line through the Bible, but I feel compelled to share this, and so I'm just going to ask you to, to really tune in because you don't want to miss any of this. The, the greatest danger for a church like ours that loves the Bible, the greatest danger is that we become a church that knows the word but doesn't live the word. You know, Jesus said when he was speaking about the end times to his disciples, he just made a, a passing comment. It wasn't in the flow of anything he was saying. He almost like you imagine him saying it out loud to himself. And he says, he says, but when the Son of Man comes, and he's talking about when he comes for his church to take us in the rapture. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith on the earth? And it's so important to remember that's the question Jesus is asking. That's what he's interested in. And he's talking about believers. He's saying, when I come for those who are mine, am I going to find faith in them? Yeah, yeah, they're going to be saved, but am I going to find faith in them? We already see today in the world a huge percentage of the church doesn't even believe Jesus is coming for them. And so we ask this question, will I find faith on the earth? Am I going to find people in a church like this who know the Bible? Or am I going to find people in a church like this who believe the Bible? Am I going to find people who can teach other people about faith? Or am I going to find people who are actually living it out and walking in it? And the greatest danger for a church like ours is that we know all about faith. But we don't actually live in it. We don't actually walk in it. And so things like this that we're going to talk about right now are, are so, so important. Back in chapter 24 again, we had Eliezer... Abraham's servant seeking a bride for Isaac, Abraham's son. 
again, as we talked about, Abraham is a type, a picture of God the Father. Isaac is a type, a picture of Jesus the Son. Eliezer is a type of the Holy Spirit. And Rebecca, the potential bride, is a type of the church. And one little detail we didn't hit on yet is that the story doesn't go like this. It doesn't go, Eliezer saw that Rebecca would be a good wife for Isaac. So he knocked her unconscious, tied her up, and kidnapped her against her will and took her back to Isaac. It's not how it goes. Instead, the Bible goes into great detail to let us know that the exact opposite scenario unfolded. Rebecca's brother tried to delay Eliezer leaving with Rebecca, and the decision was actually given directly to Rebecca. And she was asked by her brother, do you want Eliezer to take you to Isaac. And Rebecca responded with enthusiasm that yes, she did. And as you look at all that typology we've talked about, it's clearly pointing to the reality of free will. That God gave you and I sovereignty, the right to choose whether or not we accept his invitation to enter into a relationship with him. God will not force himself upon us against our will. And most of us understand that in the context of salvation. We're like, I I get that. But I want to suggest to you the same thing is true in the life of the Christian as it relates to the growth of our faith. That God will not force us to grow in our faith. He won't force us to. He will never stop working to grow us in our faith. He will never stop inviting us to trust Him more so that we can grow in our faith. But He will not force us to grow in our faith. If you're not tithing and trusting God in your finances, God will not show up and forcibly take 10% of your income every month. If you're in sexual sin with a real person or the internet, God is not going to cause that other person to get hit by a bus or make it impossible for you to ever own a smartphone or anything that has the internet again. He's not going to do that. What will happen is, is you'll just miss out on God's miraculous provision and blessings on your life. What will happen is that you'll miss out on the freedom and life that comes from following God's plan for sexuality, but God will not force you to grow in your faith. Now hang with me because I'm gonna take a huge right turn and you're gonna be like, where are we going, Jeff? But then I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring it all back together, so hang with me. You know, some of, the, some of the biggest worship songs in the last 10 years use language based around the idea of inviting the presence of God, inviting the Holy Spirit to come and move among us, among his people. You might know that there's a huge song called Holy Spirit a couple of years ago, which is all over the radio and had those words, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. And a lot of Christians, myself included, took, took issue with these songs because we'd say, come on, man, that's, that's theologically incorrect. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. And, and, and we'd say, the Holy Spirit resides in every believer, so he's already here. Why are you inviting somebody who's already here? But you know what I've realized is it's, it's not that simple. It's not that simple because when I'm leading worship, I can look out and I can see one person who is just pouring out their heart to God in worship. They are just genuinely seeking to bless the Lord and they're really experiencing God. And then I look over and there's another person who's looking at me like I'm reading them instructions on how to file their taxes. And they're both saved. And the Holy Spirit is in the room because there's, there's two of us, right? So he's here. 
And yet they're having completely different experiences. And we all generally understand, well, well, Jeff, the reason is because they're responding to the presence of God in different ways. It's not that God is moving over here, but he's not moving over here. His presence is over here, but not over here. It doesn't extend to the back row. That's not what's going on. We all understand that our response to God's presence doesn't change the fact that he's present. It's not like he shows up and goes, hey, oh no, nothing? Okay, I'm going to leave. We all understand that's not what he's doing, but we understand the way we respond to his presence changes the way we experience his presence. And if the person who puts no effort into their worship were to say to you or I, you know, I didn't really get anything out of worship today, we'd hopefully have the wisdom to tell them, well, it didn't really look like you put anything into worship today. We generally get that principle. And yet in life, in the Christian walk, I think that we sometimes expect that we can somehow ignore God when he calls us to grow in faith, and yet we will expect that we should have the same experiences with God that people are having who are responding to God's call to step out in faith. In other words, we believe, hey, I'm gonna ignore God's call to trust him in faith, but I still expect that God should provide for me the way he does people who are stepping out and trusting him in faith. I'm not gonna obey this God in this, in this area of my life, but I expect God to respond to me the same way as the person who is responding to him. And I think that sometimes we won't do what we know God is asking us to do because we believe, hey, you know, it's all good. God promised to never leave me or forsake me. But we throw up our hands in frustration because we say, man, God's not moving in my life the way he's moving in other people's lives. Or we give up and, and sink into apathy because we're not feeling God's presence in our lives. But the truth is, if we're honest, we're seeing believers have very, very different experiences with God based on how they respond to the presence of God. God is with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. He is everything you need. He's everything you want. He's an all-sufficient Savior, unquestionably. But some believers are not experiencing God that way based on how we are responding to the presence of God in our lives. Just as when we worship, some people are ministering to the Lord deeply and being ministered to deeply in return, while others are maybe just singing words. The Lord is equally present with both, but their experience is different. It's different. Let's talk about this some more. You know, I was drawn back to one of the most disturbing parts of the Gospels, and it's not disturbing because it's violent or anything. It's disturbing because it messes with what we believe about God. It messes with it. It's that time that, that Jesus goes back to his hometown. He's going back to, to Nazareth. And yet the gospels tell us he could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief. Even now, you, re you read it out loud, doesn't that just sound wrong? Because your initial reaction is, I don't get it, he's God. Nothing's impossible for him. What do you mean he could do no mighty work there? He can do anything he wants. But there's a massive, massive, massive lesson in this. 
We understand that when it comes to salvation, the Lord gives us free will. He gives us sovereignty. The Lord has chosen to interact with us in such a way that he cannot save the person who does not want to be saved. He cannot. Now, could he overwhelm their free will? Of course he could. He's God. He can do anything. But he's chosen to operate and interact with us in a way where he cannot force himself upon a person and remove their free will. Similarly, in the life of believer, in the life of the believer, the Lord invites us to trust him in greater ways. He says, I invite you to grow in your faith, but I'm not going to force you to grow in your faith. Could he overpower you and take away your free will? Absolutely. But he won't. He won't. That's why it says in the Gospels, he could do no mighty work there. Why? Because he has bound himself to not overwhelm or overpower our free will. And we know from the scriptures that there are things that the Lord wants to do in our lives that he cannot do unless we will trust him, unless we're willing to put our faith in him. He could have overpowered the free will of everyone in Nazareth, done tons of miracles, but he chose not to. He said, I'm gonna respect your free will. And when you read that story in the Gospels, the thing that hits you, the thing that just breaks your heart, and the thing that you cannot miss is it reveals to us the reality that Jesus himself can be standing right in front of you and yet not be experienced by you. He can be in your midst and yet not experienced by you. You can be in the midst of a miracle but not experience it. You can be in the presence of the healing, the freedom, the deliverance, the peace, the joy, the hope, the strength that you need, and yet not experience it. When it comes to worship, the, the reason we need songs that invite God's presence and ask him to come and meet us is because what we're really saying is, Lord, I know you're here. I know you're here, but God, I want more than that. I want to experience the reality that you are here. And when it comes to life, the miracle, the healing, the restoration, whatever it is, it has to be invited. It has to be invited. And get this, this is so huge. This is how you do it. The invitation that we extend to God is our faith. It's our faith. Let me say that again. The way we experience God, the way we invite him to allow us to experience him is by agreeing with God in faith. When Jesus walked into Nazareth, that's what he was waiting for was the invitation from people who would say, I believe you're the son of God that can heal me and save me. Jesus was waiting for that invitation, the invitation of their faith and our faith is the difference between knowing God is here and experiencing God is here. Our faith is the difference. Write this down. Faith is an invitation for God to move in our lives. Faith is an invitation for God to move in our lives. You might know that God can miraculously meet your relational needs 
But until you step out in faith and leave that sinful relationship, you will not experience the God who miraculously meets all of your relational needs. You might know that God can take care of all your practical needs, but until you step out in faith and actually trust him with your finances, you will not experience the God who meets all of your needs. You might know that God can meet every emotional need that you have, but until you walk away from that coping mechanism in faith, you will not experience the God who meets all of your emotional needs. You might know that God is your strength, but until you're willing to lift your hands to heaven and say, God, I'm not enough. I cannot do this alone. God, I need you so much. Until you do that in faith, you will not experience the God who is your strength. Write this down, this is the definition. Faith is agreeing with God's word in what you say, in what you choose to believe, and in what you choose to do. Faith is agreeing with God's word in what you say, in what you choose to believe, and in what you choose to do. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is saying I'm not gonna speak anything else except what the word of God says about my situation. Faith is saying I'm not gonna believe anything else. I'm not gonna give any time to any other opinions other than what the word of God says about my situation. And faith is saying if there's anything in my life I need to do in order to agree with the word of God, I'm going to do it. And as we do those things, as we begin to operate in faith in what we say, in what we believe, and in what we do, that extends the invitation to God to come and do a miracle in our lives, to come and meet the needs that we have. He hears from heaven and he shows up and he moves because he was invited by our faith. Whatever your need is today, again, Jesus is more than enough. He's more than enough. He's an all-sufficient Savior. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega, the beginning and the end. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. But we need more than just to know that intellectually. Man, we need to experience that. We need to say, I know that he's the God of more than enough because I've experienced the God of more than enough. I've experienced that. And I wonder how many of us are not experiencing the God who's more than enough because of our unbelief, because of our lack of faith, because we refuse to do what God has asked. And I wonder how many of us are unaware that we are in the midst of a miracle that Jesus is standing right in front of us and we are not experiencing him. Because we will not agree with him and invite him in faith to work in our lives. He will not force himself upon you. If you want your sin more than you want him, he will let you make that choice. He'll let you do it. But please hear me, right now, right not tomorrow, not next week, not next Sunday, right now, the Lord is in this place. He's here. His presence is here. The Spirit of God is here. Your healing is here. Your freedom is here. Your strength is here. Your hope is here. Your joy is here. Your peace is here. Do not miss him because of your unbelief. Do not miss him 
because you will not agree with what his word says. Whatever he's asking you to do, do it. Whatever his word says, confess it, agree with it, refuse to speak anything else, refuse to entertain any other thoughts, agree with God, and by doing that in faith, invite him to work in your life. And you will experience the God who's more than enough. That's what we need. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Jesus, we we look at your word and we see that you walked into Nazareth because you wanted people to experience you, to experience a touch from you. And Lord God, we know that living in the church age, you sent your Holy Spirit on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 because you didn't just want us to know about you. You wanted us to experience you. Lord God, you wanted us to experience you, to have a relationship with you that is not simply based on knowledge about you, but that is based on the experience of knowing you. Jesus, I pray for for all of us, Lord, even those of us who, who love you and love your words so much, but Lord, maybe have not experienced you in a long time. Lord Jesus, it's just our shared confession that we are not enough, Lord God. That we are still lost without you. That this day, this moment, we need you, Jesus. Not just to know about you, but to experience you and the nearness of your presence, God. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray, even if, there, even if there is no pressing need, would you bless us with your presence, Lord, in a way that is tangible, that reminds us that it's really true. You go before us. You go beside us. You go behind us. You hem us in on every side. You never leave us or forsake us not just in a theological sense, but in a very, very real sense. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who needs to experience a healing, a deliverance, a strengthening, a freedom. Would you shine a spotlight right now on anything that might be in the way of that? Anything that needs to be changed in faith so that we can agree with you and invite your work in our life. Lord, we just acknowledge that you know exactly what we need in every situation. And so, Lord, we're asking that we would experience the God who is more than enough as we worship, as we praise, as we bless you, as we lift you up. Lord, all glory is destined to find its end in Jesus. And so we freely offer up every bit of glory that we have to give to you right now. And we can't wait to do that for eternity in your presence. So Lord, speak to us as individuals. Allow us to experience your presence now as individuals, Jesus. Maybe in a way we haven't in a long time. Would you come, Lord Jesus, and meet with us, God? 
Just be still before the Lord. Allow him to minister to you right now. Invite him. Ask him to minister to you. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.